0: You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale.
1: With baseball's postseason rapidly approaching, the focus turns even brighter on the best players in Major League Baseball. But how we determine who is best has changed dramatically since I was a kid. Our guest today, Bill James, has a lot to do with that. Bill grew up about 90 minutes northwest of Kansas City. He's a writer, historian, and statistician who is best known for creating the study of the science behind baseball. Since 1977, he has written more than two dozen books devoted to baseball history and statistics. His approach, which he terms Sabermetrics in reference to the Society for American Baseball Research or Saber, scientifically analyzes and studies baseball to determine why teams win and lose. 2006 Time Magazine named him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. I don't know that I've ever spoken to one of the 100 most influential people in the world, so Bill, welcome to Sports Connections.
0: Thanks for having me on. I don't know that I've ever spoken to one of the 100 most influential people in the world either, but appreciate the the recognition
1: anyway. All righty. Now, I want to start with your background. I know you grew up around Kansas City. Were you a fan of the Kansas city athletics. Did you dream of hitting home runs like Vic power and Rocky Calavito? I, by the way, I wanted to be Mike Kirschberger because I thought it was more cool to be able to throw the ball from the warning track to home plate.
0: Yeah. Mike had a great arm. The, um, well, two points. One is it's 90 minutes from Kansas city now, but by the roads that were there in the, uh, 1950s, it was a little bit longer, a little bit further. And, uh, it was made clear to me at a quite young age that I was uh, not destined for athletic superstardom. So I, I don't think that I, I don't recall that I ever dreamed of being in that class. I, uh, but I did become an obsessive fan of the Kansas City A's. And on a bad day, I can still recite some of their losses.
1: <laughs> yeah, and there were many to choose from. Now, I, I remember when we talked before, you told me that you, the first time you were published was in Sporting News. Is that correct?
0: The uh, When I was about 12 years old, the Sporting News wrote an article uh, which said among its other points that the Dodgers uh, first baseman, Wes Parker, probably saved the team a hit a game with his glove, um, but he was such a weak hitter that uh, it was questionable whether he could stay in the lineup. Well, I figured uh, the letter actually was not published, by the way. Oh, I, okay. Uh, I figured that uh, if he was a – he'd hit what he did and uh, got one extra hit per game, his batting average would be around 480. So, in essence, the Dodgers were debating with themselves whether they could keep a 480 hitter in the lineup, which didn't seem to make any sense. So I wrote this up at at pretty great length. I think it was 12 to 15 pages, something like that. Probably grows an extra page every time I tell the story. But anyway, the – the uh, Sporting News, to my great surprise, did not publish a 12-page letter from a 12-year-old boy. So the um, I guess I would have been 15 then. Anyway, the uh, uh, they didn't publish the letter, but I still remember the experience.
1: When did following baseball turn from being a fan into, I think it's fair to say, an obsession? Well, there was a pretty instantaneous uh,
0: spin from ignoramus to... Uh, to obsession when I first started which is in spring of 1961 uh, I became I mean I followed baseball a little before that but I became a huge fan in spring of 1961 the uh, and uh, I was pretty obsessive right away the uh, as to when it there's another gear there and when I turned that other gear I don't know but I do know that people who knew me in college what they remember about it was I was always talking about baseball
1: Okay. Did you play, uh, stratomatic baseball growing up? I know that's one of my favorite, favorite games. We get new cards every year. And it was like, we meet the mailman at the mailbox for a week waiting for that, that package to arrive. Did you play that?
0: No, I, I didn't. Uh, uh, the, uh, strata, stratomatic cards that would have cost, I don't know, 15 or $20, but we couldn't afford anything of that nature. Okay. And, uh, so I had, to, I had to invent my own games, which I, I suspect is one of the keys to doing what I was doing because I, had, I saw from ads in the sporting news that there were such games and I understood the concept of it, but I didn't understand the math. So I had to in, uh, work on the math and invent my own games. Hmm. And my, probably my first 50 efforts to do that were pretty poor, but I kept working on it. And so by the time I was in college, I was inventing games of that nature. Wow,
1: that, that's, that's impressive. Did any of them ever catch on like Stratomatic?
0: No, I wouldn't say that any of them did. However, I have a guy who's a friend of mine who's on the faculty at KU, and, and uh, he claims that he has in his file somewhere a copy of a game that I created when I was in college and, and uh, handed out to my friends. I'm flattered to think that he retained it all these years, although he has not yet proven this, uh, but uh, <laughs> it didn't catch on with anybody else.
1: Now I remember uh, talking to you about this before, and you were incredulous—is too strong—but you were you were pretty adamant when I said, "What's the difference between statistics and analytics?" And you said, "Really, there's no similarity or words to that effect." So I'm going to ask you the question again now that we're uh, now that we're recording this. What is the difference between statistics
0: and analytics? Uh, baseball analytics is is a branch of economics, essentially. It applies economic theory to baseball, rather than asking how many dollars does this and how many what's the value of this. It asks what's the what's the value of a run create relative to a win, and what's the value of a single relative to a, um, a a walk, and what's the value of a light hitting second baseman relative to a, a a big moose who plays first base and can slug. What's the value of one to another? It's concerned with the values. there were the relative values on the field using economic methods to study that. But with regard to what I said earlier, I don't know that that's right because um, economics depends upon modern economics, not the kind of economic, When I studied economics and this is how old I am. But when I studied economics, it mostly was, was a historical uh, subject rather than a sub most of it was economic history rather than math and economic theory. That's not true at all anymore. Modern economics is based heavily on math and statistical work. So we are reliant, uh, and analytics is reliant on statistics in the same way that economics is, uh, and reliant on mathematics in the same way that economics is.
1: So is it safe to say that statistics are the numbers and analytics is using the numbers to either prove a point or to explain a point uh, you the first half of that i was going to thought i was going to say yes
0: <laughs> but no we're
1: not
0: no we're we're not we're not we're not proving a point and and or explaining a point as much as we are searching for an answer okay um, what we do i mean once you find an answer and you're convinced that it's true then you have an obligation to prove it to others or or, um, die with the issues done resolved. The, uh, uh, but, but that's what the more important thing is to figure out what the answer is before you get around to trying to convince others of it.
1: Okay. So maybe a better way to say it is analytics is based on statistics to then carry it much further. You can't have analytics without the statistics, but you, but uh, that maybe that's not a good way to describe it, but statistics well, you, is a very you, you, remedial way of looking at it, where the analytics are taking those statistics and doing something with them.
0: You you can have analytics without statistics, uh,
1: but it, it,
0: most of most of analytics is heavily based on statistics. But for example, uh, there there is something called the defensive spectrum. The uh, defensive spectrum is the order of positions. Uh, on a team with respect to the scarcity of people who can play them. And uh, so you have uh, the most difficult positions which are, which are to play on the field, which are shortstop and, uh, and catcher, you know, and you have center field the, uh, and right field, second base, probably third base, uh, first base, DH and its I should be careful how I phrase that because it can sound like I'm saying that first base is easy to play, which is not what actually what I'm saying. What I'm actually saying is that on a base, Major League Baseball team, there are always players who have the physical capacity to play first base, even though they may not be very good at it, but they have the physical ability to do it, whereas the number of people on a Major League team who have the physical ability to play shortstop The quickness and the agility and the throwing arm is pretty limited.
1: Okay, that that, that's a good way of. As you were talking about that, I was thinking of of Billy Butler, you know, who had a great a great bat, and they could not find a play. The Royals actually played him in left field a few times and figured out that was a a a fool's errand. But um, he was primarily a DH because he could hit really well, and they couldn't find a position where yeah he may have had the skills. Compared to compared to you and me, he was a really good defensive first baseman. But compared to the average major leaguer, he he wasn't. So it was a matter of fine-tuning or figuring out what he was good at using that and finding someone else to do the the other parts of the of the equation.
0: Right. Billy Butler is one player I was completely wrong about. I remember once saying in a in a meeting. With the red sox when we i was with the red sox that billy butler would be able to hit majors when he was 40 years old and it turned out that he wasn't uh and then the other analytics guys in the room scoffed at me for saying that because how do you know that but my my sense was that billy was going to be able to roll out of bed and hit no matter how old he was that didn't quite turn out to be true his career ended quicker than i thought it would the uh but uh the uh yeah he was it, it was he was, a, he was a wonderful hitter really is he could, he could crush the ball without striking out, which is a rare thing.
1: Yeah. And one of my favorite, Billy Butler – obviously, I'm here in Kansas City as well. One of my favorite Billy Butler uh, stories or, or memories is when he stole a base in the postseason, I think in 2014, and he stands on second base and does the motorcycle thing like, like Gerard Dyson would do, and place just went nuts because Billy was not fleet of foot
0: yeah to say the least he, he kind of replaced um, mike Sweeney at, at first um, I, not people many people remember him. mike came up as a catcher right and the royals really tried to make him a catcher and you know it was one of those things that once he got to the majors you would say how did we convince ourselves that this was going to work <laughs> uh, he, he, he couldn't catch at all but but uh, so he moved to first base and and he was fantastic at it
1: and he he ended up being not not a good first baseman, but a decent, an adequate first baseman defensively. Right.
0: Oh, yeah. See, he was pretty good. He had a good arm for first baseman.
1: Yeah. And uh, he, he was um,
0: very conscientious. Yeah. Um, why but, you, you know, you said that they played first base better than you and I, and that's no doubt true. But if you go to a high school game, you will sometimes see high school first basemen who are better defensively than Major League first basemen. And that's, that's, an odd, that's an anomaly because you don't see that anywhere else. You would never, ever see a high school shortstop who was better than me or any other position. But at first base, because in the majors, you tend to pile up people like Billy Butler. Um, and, and so there are a lot of – you'll see a pop-up be caught in a high school game that you know that Billy Butler or Willie Akins or Steve Balboni or any of the other – statue <laughs> yes, would not have gotten to.
1: Bill, why do you think the science behind baseball, obviously many of us grew up baseball fans liking different aspects of the game. Why do you think the science of baseball appealed to you so much?
0: Uh, It's just the way my mind works, I think. Uh, And when I, I see a, If you take a problem and state it in mathematical terms and you, you sometimes see that what people are saying doesn't make any sense in mathematical terms. And the example I gave earlier of the Dodgers wondering whether a first baseman who saved them a hit per game could stay in the lineup. When you think about it in logical terms and in as value statements, you realize that that can't possibly make any sense. Yeah. And you'd be surprised. and, and, The awareness of those things that people said that didn't make any sense drove me to do what I started doing. And you would be surprised that even after we are, (laughs) to be frank, buried in sabermetrics and buried in analytics, sometimes to the point of great annoyance, people still do that. Uh, There are still lots of things that people say about baseball that in analytical terms, don't actually make any sense at all.
1: Okay. Um, I want to talk about how you and I connected. um, And I didn't realize this before earlier this year, uh, when you worked for my uncles, uh, Alan and Randy Hendricks, who were major league baseball agents, and they had a phenomenal record in arbitration cases. And that's one of the things that, you know, growing up, I would brag about my uncle's work not only doing this, but they were really, really good at it. And when arbitration first happened, they, you know, we brag about the fact these guys are, are phenomenal. When I asked Alan about that, he told me that you were part of that. He gave you actually an awful lot of the credit. Um, just talk about, first of all, when you became involved with them and how, how you helped them uh, win their arbitration cases.
0: I became involved with them postseason, nineteen seventy nine, the uh, and I appreciate Alan giving me credit. Uh, the uh, Randy didn't like me to talk a lot in arbitration cases, which I understand in retrospect better than I did at the time. The uh, but uh, uh, the the first arbitration case I was ever in. You have to excuse me for a second. I have to let my dog crawl under the desk here. The uh, The first arbitration case I was ever in was a great experience for me. And I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but it was the first time in the law in my life that I realized that everybody else here is trying to play my game. I mean, what I did all the time, 365 days a year, quite literally, uh, was to try to figure out the relative value of each thing that a player did. And, um, this had at the time very little respect in the general sporting community but if you think about it what an arbitrator was does in a case is exactly what i did all the time he's trying to figure out what the relative values are so i would get into an arbitration case and all of a sudden everybody else is trying to play my game everybody else is trying to is on page 1 of a subject that i've been studying all my life and that was just wonderful. That was like that was the <laughs> that was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. It was just, it was just so much fun. So I hope I was able to help Alan and Randy win some cases. I, I believe I was, and other agencies later on as well. Uh, but I would say also that Alan and Randy helped my career a lot too. So I I, I very much appreciate that.
1: But well, what the way Alan described it, and I was going to let you give your explanation first before I threw this out there, because it would be hard for you to respond to <laughs> respond the way I wanted you to. After telling you this, he basically said that they went into arbitration armed with not only with bullets, but with guns that the opposite. And that may not have been the analogy he used, but but with weapons, the other side didn't even know existed, said we would we would present why our player was worth more than this other player who got this amount of money based on this statistic. And the arbitrator would look at the owners and say, what's your response to that? And they, we, we never heard that before. We didn't know. And it was because you were preparing them so well with statistics that nobody else was doing. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of,
0: again, that's kind of him to say, but that, that, that's that I think that is an accurate synopsis and that is part of why sabermetrics caught on not a large part but that's some of why sabermetrics caught on the way it did is that um um you know well, you lose an arbitration case that that could cost you at that time it might cost you a hundred thousand or three hundred thousand dollars so and you know to get some schlub off the street like me only cost you forty thousand dollars a year so uh it, it was in your interest to uh to uh find somebody who understood those things and and bring them into your office if you could and it turned out that a lot of those people were brought in for that reason turned out to be general managers and and uh and some of them became scouts um, and they they uh, they they entered the game um
1: when did when did the team start seeing you know, you said you started with Alan and Randy in 79. When did the team start hiring people like you? Or actually, when did you get hired by a team to basically look at the other side of it?
0: I had offers to work with teams. And well, I did some piecemeal work with teams as early as the mid to late 1980s, just small projects. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to talk about them because in essence, I'd be claiming credit for success as some team I really had that much to do with. The, uh, uh, but uh, I did have offers to work with teams full-time by the 1990s, but it was never the right situation. Um, and those were jobs that in retrospect, I'm very glad I turned down because I just know that it would not have worked uh, because they were people who, thought they understood what I was doing and wanted to direct it into their areas, but they didn't actually understand what I was doing at all. And it it just would have been a disaster. When I had the opportunity to work with the Red Sox beginning in 1902, uh, I realized that A...
1: Wait, wait, not that old,
0: 2002. (laughs) What did I say? 1902. (laughs) That's right. just kidding. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) 2002. The... uh, I realized that I was working, A, I was working with people who did understand what I was doing, which by that time, a lot of people did. I'd been writing about it for 25 years. And, uh, but also the, they're going to win. I mean, I interviewed with those guys and I realized, these guys are going to win. The, um, so that was a, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot easier to convince yourself to join an organization if you're convinced they're going to win rather than if you're convinced that they're going nowhere
1: other than maybe Carlton Fisk's home run in game six of the 1975 world series, maybe the most famous single play in Red Sox history was Dave Roberts stealing second base in game four of the ALCS. If I'm, if my memory is correct from the, from the analytics standpoint, what, Obviously it turned out great, but from an analytics right. standpoint, was stealing second base off Mariano Rivera the right decision to make?
0: No, it, it was not. It would not have been something that I would have recommended if anybody had <laughs> asked me, but I'm, glad, I'm awfully glad it worked out.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, when I, I forgot to ask you that when I talked before, but I was thinking about that with the fact that you work for the Red Sox and they obviously very soon afterwards broke an 80 something year curse and, and uh, and that one play is what now. Obviously, that's not why they won, but that's why that's when it started started to happen. It, and speaking of not all happening at one time, sabermetrics didn't all happen at one time. It has continued right. to evolve. And so, why do you think it? First, I've got quite a few questions, but first, why do you think it took a while to catch on?
0: The uh, uh, the, the first people who wrote about it. There were people who tried to write about the general area uh, before I did. Uh, but, for, but they didn't write very well, to be honest. Hmm. Um, and that, but also, they were, not, they, had, they were people who had better options in life. Uh, they, were, they were people who had advanced degrees and um, had mostly they, people who had good jobs anyway. And this was a little sideline thing they were doing. Uh, this is what I had, this is my lifeline. And so I did it with all of my energy all of the time. And that was, uh, so I was always producing product. And this, this uh, uh, it was like, uh, it's easier to get a bonfire buying, going if you have a big tree in your yard because you've always got leaves. It's the same sort of principle.
1: I'm guessing some of it may also be bill that, that the stubbornness, the old, the old guard of baseball, we've always done it this way. It's always worked this way. Why do we need this new, this new thing? Do you think there was some of that involved as well?
0: Oh, very much. Yeah. And, and there was, to return to the Dave Roberts example, I, I was not a big fan of the stolen base. I mean, what I was saying was a, any successful, successful stolen base, helps you of course uh, so the stolen base is certainly a good play when it works but stolen base attempts in general don't do very much uh, they can help you win or they can hurt you on ballots. but even if they help you win it's you know three percent of a successful offense it's not 90 percent and I would explain that and people would give me a hundred different reasons why I had missed this or I had missed that or I hadn't thought about this all of which were complete nonsense. The uh, I had thought about them, I had studied them, you know, but but uh, there was just there was very, very strong resistance to believing. uh, And there still is, uh, to be honest, uh, the um, that's that type of one of the things that I. uh, Tackled baseball about in the 1970s was baseball, people would say that a player's prime is ages 28 to 32. And that it's believed that Stan Musial was the first person to uh, to formulate that. If you study the issue, it's very obviously not true. Uh, a player's prime is 25 to 29, and actually, more than 50 percent of good major league players are retired by age 32. Um, there's, they just they do not last that long. The um, and but this illusion that a 31 year old player has some time left in front of him still permeates baseball today and it's really only in the last five years that people have, and people have begun to see that paying a a uh, making a if you make a 200 million dollar contract with a 31 year old player he'd better be a really really good 31 year old player or you're wasting a lot of money the uh, and it's just It's just now that baseball people are beginning to understand that at a profound level.
1: And and obviously the analytics is, is what drives you and stuff. Can you, can you separate yourself from the analytics and enjoy the aberrations? For example, I I know you're, you're in Lawrence, so you're still close. You follow what Salvador Perez is doing this year, having the best year of his career in his 32 year old season. Um, on pace for the second most home runs in Royals history on pace for the most home runs by a player who's primarily a catcher
0: and he's never had a
1: year like this. Are you impressed? Can you separate, can you enjoy the fact that, Hey, there are rules and then there are exceptions. Can you enjoy that?
0: Well, I enjoy all of what I do. Uh, The, uh, I mean, again, that's another reason why I do for what I do for a living. I'm, I'm too lazy to do something. I don't enjoy the, um, and, uh, um, but the, the, the aberrations and the unusual ones are, are part of what we study. They're not, they're not outliers. They're in that sense. They're, they're part of what you study. Right. And it, a case like Salvi is, is, is wonderful actually, because of the analytical questions that it presents, but also I have been telling people since uh since salvi came to the majors quite a few years ago that there's just something different about this guy that you you cannot quantify i mean he he's huge and he bounces around on the field like a puppy dog uh did when he was young particularly and he as i wrote years ago he he smiles with his whole body you know he he plays baseball with this big smile that you can see from the center field bleachers. There is just something really different about this guy. He c- he commands the game. Yeah. And even when he was young, he was out there, at, you know, he'd take the catcher spot, and it was it was like, okay, guys, I'm in charge here. Uh, it, it's very very unusual. And if you if you made a a stratomatic card out of what Salvi had done, a lot of people wouldn't want the the stratomatic card. Yeah but the player was something different and so it isn't when you have that it isn't a proper approach from analytics to throw away all the things that don't get onto the onto onto the stratomatic card the proper approach is to try to figure out how to include those things in your analysis so what you ought to be doing is trying to i'm not saying measure but try to find some way to see the value in or place a value on the unusual things that only a few players do.
1: Yeah, it's interesting with, with Salvi. Um, you know, every time the Royals tear up one contract before it's expired and give him an extension, there's plenty of people that say, well, that's a dumb decision. He's now X number of years old. He's, he's dwindling. He keeps getting better. Plus, he is the, you know, uh, it, it's an a overused cliche. He's the heart and soul of that team. With the young pitching that they have, he is guiding them. So his value is, I think, way more than the statistics, and and now the statistics are measuring up to the to the other side of it.
0: Yeah, is very. is an unusual and a wonderful player, and you know, you, you, in a sense, you're, wish there were more of him, but in a sense, you're glad that there's only one of them because it makes him unique and special.
1: Yeah, that that's a great great way of putting it. You know, I know. When, when Sabermetrics first started catching on, I have to tell you, I wasn't enthusiastic. Of course, I didn't know that you worked for my uncles. That might have influenced me the other way a little bit. But I wanted to enjoy the art of baseball rather than the science of baseball. But now as I have covered Major League Baseball on a daily basis for more than 20 years, I find myself relying on it more often than not. So is Sabermetrics, is the analytics side of baseball, can, is it through evolving or will it continue to
0: evolve? I would say that it's in an early stage. Wow. Uh, the, the, and it, what, what I say often, probably too often, is that we have a, a small island of knowledge surrounded by an ocean of ignorance. Uh, the, the number of things that we don't know and don't understand, again, Salvi is a good example of that. The number of things that we don't know and don't understand is immense compared to the things that we can measure and, and do fully understand.
1: Okay. Um, That's exciting. Um, So, and you can't even say what's to come because we may not know uh, what's what's to come. Um, I want to talk about some of the, some of the different um, terms or different studies that you have developed. Tell me why they should be important to the average fan, not to the scout, not to the general manager, not to the to the manager trying to figure out, you know, whether to bat this guy or that guy uh, in today's game against this pitcher, but just why should they be important to the average fan first runs created?
0: Well, a, a hitter's job is not to compile a high batting average or to have a high slugging percentage or to have a pretty swing. A hitter's job is to put runs on the scoreboard. So if you're, you're really trying to understand what his role on the team is, what his value to a team is. What you first have to answer is, how many runs does he create by the things that he does? Um, which, again, that's a, a, st- a question studied by economic methods. I mean, what's the, what's the value of a single? What's the value of a double? What's the value of a triple? And when you put it all together, what's the value of all of the things that this player has done?
1: And then to the, to carry that a little bit further, if you've got a first baseman or a shortstop or whatever who may not have quite as high as a statistic in runs created, but the defensive runs saved, um, the defi- defensive efficiency rating, then th- that makes up for it. Going back to the Wes Parker thing, yeah, he was an average hitter, but he was a good first baseman, a great first baseman who saved an average of a hit a game that makes him far more average, far more valuable than the really good hitting first baseman who had iron hands.
0: Right. The uh, iron hands, by the way, was uh, <laughs> the nickname of long-term Royals coach uh, Chuck Hiller. I don't know if you remember <laughs> Dick Hauser coach, his nickname was iron hands. I don't know if he enjoyed being reminded of that. Anyway, the, uh, uh, the, uh, but again, there, there's a point that, I don't know that baseball has fully embraced yet. And I don't know that they're wrong to not fully embrace it. Uh, When we started, when I was doing the things I was doing in the 70s, we might have been able to measure a player's defensive runs saved with what you might call 60% accuracy. You know, 50% being you don't know anything, you're right half the time and you're wrong half the time we might have been at 60% and now we're higher than that we might be at 80% but i it is still true that if you have a light hitting first baseman who is measured by us as saving a lot of runs he's going to have a hard time getting getting playing time uh the royals had one of those guys oh, 15 20 years ago we had uh texas name guy we got from chicago i can't think of it now he, he is Our defensive metrics showed him as just a fantastic defensive first base, but, but he could never get in the lineup.
1: Because still, statistics, not analytics, statistics are still more important in baseball than probably any other sport.
0: Right. And you know why that is? It's because we play so many games. Uh, if you play 162 games a year, it's a very, very orderly game. It's, yeah. it's the only game in which the players take turns hitting, and uh, it's, it's sort of like you know, basketball. If you imagine the players take turns shooting, it's your turn to shoot now, LeBron. The um, uh, the uh, that it's would a very go orderly well <laughs> Yeah, right. The uh, it's a very orderly game, and also the players stop at base one or base two. It, it's got it's got structure to it. And they play a hundred games and that makes the statistics meaningful in a way that, you know, it's very hard to find meaningful stats uh, for a football lineman. For example, I know people are trying to do that and, and not, not knocking what they've done is just saying it's a hard task. The, uh, and, and, but baseball, is just perfect for, for that kind of uh, demented activity.
1: <laughs> All right. Let me throw another one out there excuse me, uh, Pythagorean winning percentage.
0: Right. I actually came up with that uh, 1975. I was working really hard on this problem for a month or two before I came up with it. I was trying to find some way to take the runs that a team scores and the runs they allow and predicting the number of games the team would win. It's important because uh, at that time, a lot of people didn't understand. Although it seems impossible in retrospect, a lot of people really didn't understand that the number of games you win is a predictable outcome of how many runs you score and how many runs you allow. You know, uh, so there's a predictable result from scoring this many more runs and a predictable improvement from allowing this many fewer runs. So I was working on that problem for really hard and. Uh, I had several versions of the formula that worked, but not quite. And I just, I was walking along campus and it just literally popped into my head that that would work. I knew as soon as it came to me that it would work. And I had to rush home and get to my spread. We didn't have computers then. Right. Uh, and get to my uh, get to my calculation and show that it worked. But I, I knew that it would.
1: Okay. Okay. Um. Major league equivalency and I guess that one excuse me that one is um, the the stats in the minor leagues and how they will translate to major leagues
0: right until 1983 it was a universal belief among baseball people that what a player hit in the majors didn't relate very well to what he would hit in the minors and you would hit see somebody who hit 350 in the in the minors would come to the majors and couldn't hit. Well, that's literally true. I mean, there are people who hit 350 in the minors and come to the majors and, and don't hit. And there are three reasons for that. One is that the park effects may be radically different. Um, the, uh, he may be in, he could be playing in what was then the Pacific coast league and playing in one of the better hitters parks there. It was a, a context of, Team scored six runs a game, so everybody had numbers that looked good, even if they weren't good. Um, and a second reason was that um, uh, the uh, people often had a misunderstanding about what were in fact good numbers. Uh, you can have a guy who hits, you know, three hundred in minor leagues, but he doesn't walk and he doesn't have any power. It's not really that, not actually valuable. And a third reason was that. Many times, minor league players, it takes, there's an adjustment period and it takes time to get past that adjustment period and start hitting for some players. If you do those things, if you make the adjustments that you should make, then what a player hits in the minors predicts what he will hit in the majors absolutely 100% as well as previous major league at bats will predict what a player will do in the majors in other words any player can stop hitting at any time and players right. get better sometimes and that happens in the middle of a major league career or a minor league career but minor league numbers are just as predictive of major league success as major league numbers the uh and uh so in 19 i i realized that that was true and began the campaign to try to convince people that, that was true uh in 1983 or 1982, maybe. And so far we've had about 40% success. People sort of get it, but there's still an awful lot of skepticism about that. And a lot of people still don't get it. Uh, I mean, among them, the Royals, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, uh, I mean, it was really clear that Whit Merrifield was going to be a good major league hitter. Yeah. The Royals just wouldn't believe it. And they kept him in the minors way too long. Yeah. And they had this guy, what was his name? Uh Felix. It's a guy named Hernandez a few years ago. I remember that he hit 330 in the minors every year and in, in, in Ohio every year. And they more or less released him or sold him to the Cardinals. Turned out he could hit. The, um, there, there's still a lot of people who don't believe that, but it is still true.
1: And I think back to the to the like the George Brett model never hit over 300 in the minor leagues, but he didn't have Charlie Lau coaching him until he got to the Royals. That's what yeah. turned. He had the basic skills, but Charlie Lau's different approach uh, is what changed George Brett. Not so he's not the aberration that he looks like from this. It's because he got he got some somebody to tell him something that clicked that changed his overall right. approach and made him a hall of famer. Well,
0: and but he, when he was twenty. His last minor league season, he was twenty one. Uh, well, 20 was it? He, yeah, he's 21 when he came up with the Royals. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of growth left there. I mean, there's, right. there's usually a big difference between a, uh, a 27 year not always. I mean, some guys get to 20, some guys reach their peak at age 21, but but usually a 21 year old player has quite a lot of growth left. And yeah. George just having also had an unusual, because of Lyle's coaching and because of George's great determination, yeah. uh, he had much more growth left than. Is that a player typically does?
1: Uh, you know, we've talked about different different ratings, different studies that you've developed. One that I don't, I don't think you said you were involved in the, the analytic of, and that's war. And you and I talked about this before. That what war is, m- my understanding, of what war is, is if you take an exactly average player in every way, shape, or form, and put him in, and and put him in place of the guy. This is how the, the run differential between those two. So a guy with a, a, a war of 10 means he would be responsible for 10 more wins than an exactly average player playing in place of him. Is that a, the best way to describe that?
0: No, no, that's not quite right. OK. Um, the um, that would be W.A.A. wins above average. OK. Um, and war is wins above replacement level and a replacement. First of all, I'm not an advocate of war. I don't, I do not believe that it's an accurate or reliable analytical statistic, and I think way too much value is given to it. That's my opinion. Okay. Uh, however, my contribution to it was to come up with a concept of replacement level. War is wins above replacement level. And I invented the concept of replacement level, borrowing it from economics, uh, and, the, um, uh, and then other people decided to measure it. But to be honest, it is my humble opinion, as if I was actually humble. It is my <laughs> humble opinion <laughs> that, uh, that uh, uh, it, it is not a reliable statistic and it cannot be, div- be, be converted into a reliable metric because there is inherent instability in comparing two levels. First of all, nobody actually knows what replacement level is. I mean, it's a theory, and there's a number placed there, but nobody actually knows what replacement level is. Second, replacement level varies a lot. I mean, there are some teams that, uh, well, I mean, the Red Sox <laughs> at the moment with a bunch of COVID guys, we've got a bunch of guys on the lineup who are above replacement level for us, but they, they wouldn't be above replacement level for the Royals. The um uh, Replacement level varies from time to place. Shouldn't have used an immediate example, I see. Anyway, um, restarting the phrase, replacement level varies a lot from time to place. It's different one place than another. And that's one major element of instability. But uh, when you you compare two estimates one to another, then you get... uh, all of the error that is in both measurements, greatly exaggerated by the fact that you're, it's on a much smaller base. And because that, that I'll never, I don't think I'll ever win this war, pardon me, I'll never convince people that that's true, but yeah, it is true, <laughs>
1: right?
0: It is true that I don't, I don't believe any form of, any reliable form of war can ever be embedded.
1: Um, I want to talk to you. I want to switch gears a little bit. Talk to you about some of the rules changes, not not whether you're a fan of them or or what, but how they affect the statistics, which then, as we talked about earlier, lead to the analytics Two that I'm thinking of right off the top of my head, the runner on second starting on second base and in extra innings and the other one, seven inning games for doubles double headers. How did that affect statistics and how does that and then in turn affect analytics?
0: I don't know that I've thought about either of those. Okay. I don't know that I've, I've thought about how to how to um how to measure either of the effects
1: of those. I mean the the, the one thing I can see the runner on second is um you know the uh you know in, in last night's Royals Indians game uh both teams had bases loaded in the 10th inning and couldn't score and the Royals had bases loaded with nobody nobody out and couldn't score and had Salvi not struck out or, um, uh, uh, forget who was that Ben and then, and Michael a Taylor popped a second had any one of those guys come through then the pitcher who started that inning would have taken the loss because right. that was his run. Now it's an unearned run, but it's still his run and he would have taken the loss that affects statistics, which then in turn affects analytics. But if you haven't given that much thought, we'll just, we'll move on from that one.
0: Um, I will, have raise my hand, but when you have the bases loaded, and nobody out, uh, and you don't score, that's called a Houdini. The uh, and uh, it's another one of the silly stats that I've invented and have not been. But uh, we count how many Houdinis each team, each pitcher has. And if you have five a season, you'll lead the majors easily. It's pretty rare.
1: <laughs> well, and it's interesting. My my wife was obviously I was covering the game and. And when you know this morning, because she was asleep when I got home, she was like, "Man, I really thought we were going to win that." And I said, "When the game was over at, after the tenth, there was n- there was no chance the Royals were going to win that game." She goes, "Oh no, they had just as much." Well, she's a she's still a fan of the art of baseball, and she thinks that her team, the Royals, are always going to win. She's surprised when they don't go one sixty two and zero. And I have kind of come around to your side of it, saying, "Okay." there's momentum is so important that they were so deflated um, when they did not score there. There was, I don't know what the analytics would say, their chances of winning that game after, after leaving the bases loaded with nobody out in the 10th, but uh, maybe that's your next project.
0: I'll make, put it on the list.
1: (laughs) All right. Um, Let's say you're commissioner for a day. What rule change or what changes would you like to see in Major League Baseball?
0: The, um, uh, the number one thing that needs to be done is to stop hitters from stepping out of the box between pitches. And that is the number one thing. And that, that's the biggest waste of time. Uh, and, and, you know, there's no, there's no provision in the rules for you to do that. When, I, when you and I were young, uh, the uh, hitters did not do that. Uh, but now every hitter steps out of the box between every pitch and uh, and it just slows the pace of the game down to where it. It uh, lessens, don't give me, I enjoy baseball more than I ever have. i I'm more obsessive, and the more you know about the game, the more you enjoy it. Yeah, and I'm not saying I don't enjoy baseball anymore, but it it does not add to the ent- entertainment value of the game. It's like if you went to a movie and, and a hit and a, each actor before he delivered his lines would just pause for a minute and think about how to deliver the line, you know it would not have a beneficial effect on the on the movie. Um, and it's the same in baseball. It has the same effect on a baseball game that it would have on a movie. Uh, and yet, for reasons that nobody can figure out, we have decided to allow this to happen. It's not in the rules. In the rules, the a player cannot call, call time. Only the umpire can call time. But we allow it to happen.
1: Yeah, my, Mike Hargrove, who was known as the human rain delay, wouldn't stand out in today's game. No, nope.
0: that's right. Now he, now he'd just be, uh, he just be another guy. They all do that.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: Mike <laughs> Hargrove is the inventor of modern baseball. I, <laughs> I'll send that tweet as soon as we're off.
1: There you go. There you go. Um, the one, the one change I would like to see, and I want your opinion on this, is is to not allow the the shifts. It seems like three out of every four players are hitting into a three players on one side shift. And it it bugs me as somebody who played baseball, not well, but played baseball growing up. Well, if I got three guys on this side of the field, I'm going to hit it to the other side of the field. Do you think that's a a good rule change to say you have to have two players on each side of second base and they have to, the infielders have to stay in the infield?
0: Uh, No, I don't think it's a good rule change. Uh, you, okay. it's it's hard to legislate against people behaving rationally. Um, the uh, it's it, people do that because it works. Yeah. Uh, first of all, most people greatly exaggerate uh, the effect that uh, the effect of of the shifts. You know, it doesn't. It just takes four or five points away from the average batting average. It doesn't have really? very much effect at all. You have to do it. Because if the other team is doing it and you're not, it will cost you one or two games a year. And in baseball, you have to fight for every advantage you can get or you won't win. It's just the way all sports work. But it's not a big advantage. Um, But I don't think you could. I think legislating against it would uh, ultimately cause more trouble, more problems than it
1: solves. Okay. Interesting. Interesting perspective. I hadn't looked at it uh look at it that way um now you obviously spent your entire career doing analytics for baseball did you ever consider doing that for other sports or does it go back to the fact that we talked about earlier baseball is such an orderly sport that it made it conducive to that Uh,
0: to do analytics well you have to understand what it is you're analyzing at a deep level and i honestly do not have the the depth of understanding to analyze any other subject Very well. I have been asked many times to analyze something for somebody, and I do the best I can. Sometimes, but and even for example, I'm I'm an obsessive college basketball fan. I love the Jayhawks. I I've seen over seen live over half of all games ever played in Allen Fieldhouse, Uh, and I I I live live and die with the Jayhawks during the winter. But I do not understand college basketball well enough to do a a reliable analysis of it. Um, you really there's a lot of things that I mean. I know that Bill Self is a is a, a brilliant defensive coach, and I know that from the results. But I don't have actually have any idea how he's done it. Although I've, I've seen live or on TV virtually every game he's ever coached here. Uh, I just but I still don't really understand how his what his defensive schemes are or what they amount to. So. I don't think I, I do I do occasionally experiment in other fields, but people properly properly ignore me when I do that.
1: Well, speaking of college basketball, I'm gonna I'm gonna pat you on the back here. I wrote a book uh, last basketball season with Joe Lenardi, the inventor of bracketology, and he said his goal early when he first started developing this was to be known as the Bill James. Of college basketball. So, how does it feel to be admired so much as an innovator and creator of an entire industry?
0: The uh, well, I tell Joe. I I thank him for the. He's told me that. I've heard that from him too. The um uh, the uh it, it's it's kind of unnerving. Um, <laughs> on a certain level, one know I know that I'm not actually worthy of such a position. Uh, and, you know, it's not just Joe, but there, at the time that I was most famous 20 years ago, there was a Bill James of everything. Uh, and it was, it was unnerving. Uh, and I always knew that, you know, it's, <laughs> um, there was a lot of, I had very good fortune. I entered the right profession for me at the right time and I caught the right breaks. But there were, I always knew there was never anything special about me. That other people should be, that influenced by. Okay.
1: And last question before we do a couple of personal questions to wrap things up. What advice would you give a young sports fan looking to get into sports analytics? Uh,
0: the, the most well, one thing, one small thing is learn to speak Spanish. Uh, an awful lot of baseball players are are uh, native Spanish speakers, and it matters a lot whether or not you speak the language. The um, but the other thing I would say is you have to know something else other than baseball. Uh, you have to have, I brought to it a, I'm not an expert economist, you know, I have a degree in economics, but I'm not any kind of expert. The, um, but you have to, that was what I brought to baseball. I brought an understanding of how economics improves your understood, your knowledge base to baseball. You have to bring something to it. Uh, that, so don't, yeah, you have to be obsessive baseball fan, but you have to know something else as well.
1: Okay. Uh, I always like to wrap up with these two questions or two, com- two points uh, with my guests. First of all, talk about your family.
0: The, uh, I've been very blessed in that area as well. Uh, I have been married for 42 years uh, to uh, Susan McCarthy. We still, we, we still are. And uh, uh, I have three children, all of whom, uh grew up, graduated college, got married, got good jobs. And uh none of them ever lived lived in the kid in their parents' basement after growing up. So I've been uh at Ruben who's an actuary in Seattle. Uh Rachel, who's a writer, lives near me, and uh and Isaac who's a, a software engineer, a, a video game developer in uh lives in in uh uh San Francisco area.
1: Okay. And then final question. I always, if if people will answer it, I always like to ask, what's your legacy?
0: The uh, that's up to other people to decide. The um, the uh, I uh, you would not believe how many people told me when I started out that I would never make a living doing this. I mean, everybody I met in the first five years I was trying to make a living in this area, uh, I met. Literally, hundreds of people who would tell me, Oh, I'm really interested in what you're doing, but there aren't enough of us doing it that uh, you'll ever make a living doing it. Um, the, uh, my legacy is that I opened a door, and I, there were people telling me there's nobody in that room. And I knew there were people in that room not being sold, served, and I was willing to risk my professional career on that knowledge. But I had no idea how many people were in that room. And when we opened that room, it wasn't open the door to that room. It wasn't 20 people in there, it was millions. Um, so that was what I did. I opened the door to that room and allowed that type of of um, energy to move forward.
1: All right, well, that's that's a great answer. Bill, I appreciate you joining us. I've enjoyed this very much. You, you've given me some new things to think about. When I head out to the stadium tonight, I might look at, I might look at that shift a little bit differently. It irritates me, but maybe I can look at it uh, a little bit differently. Thanks very much for joining us, and and good to connect with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on,
0: David. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmailbooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next
1: time.